9, Romans chapter 9, which begins on page 945. If you're not familiar with the Bible, there is one, should be one in front of you in the pew, and Romans 9 is on page 945. You will want to have your Bible open. We are going to read a substantial portion, uh, all of chapter 9 and most of chapter 10 as well. I think actually that's the best way to read this section of the Scripture is together and not separately, and so uh, we're going to do that. While you are turning there, I want to remind you that if you brought uh, a card for Chad to celebrate his 10th anniversary, there is a basket out in the foyer. Um, if you're watching by live stream, you can send that in. We'll collect those this week and next week. Um, but we're in the last message in this five-week series, Glorifying God at Gray Road. And as we have done in, in all of the weeks... Let's once again read this statement together just to get it into our minds, all right? It's up on the screen. Here we go. Gray Road Baptist Church exists to glorify God by exalting Jesus in passionate worship, equipping Christians for life and service, encouraging one another in meaningful fellowship, and engaging the world with the gospel. Engaging the world with the gospel, evangelism, missions, taking the word to the world in our public ministry, in our private lives, wherever the Lord takes us from week to week, through missions partnerships, both in our giving and in our going to the ends of the earth and to the end of the street, engaging the world with the gospel. This is Jesus' commission, you'll remember. He gave it to His disciples, and all of us who are His disciples inherit it. In Matthew 28, Jesus says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And then again in Acts 1.8, before He ascends into heaven, You will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. These are Jesus' marching orders, if you will, for the church. Some of you, in fact, need to be launched from this church because God is calling you or God will call you to have a role beyond this congregation in fulfilling this great commission. Maybe to be part of planting another local church here that would seek to be healthy so that it might send and support missionaries. Maybe yourself to be a missionary who goes that we send and that we support. You may be looking at your life and thinking, this is not something I should be considering right now. I was reminded just this week that uh, when Gary and Mary Jane Strange were preparing to go to Kenya to plant a church in Nairobi, uh, they, were, they went through the ringer at uh, ABWE to be sent, and Gary was 51 years old at that point. And he was 53 when they arrived in Kenya. It shouldn't be off the table. Mary Jane, of course, is much, much younger than Gary. <laughs> but it shouldn't be off the table. But as we seek to obey Jesus' command in whatever role He gives us, I wonder if you've ever thought about what keeps us going. What, what keeps us going in this mission? How can we be certain that this mission that Jesus has given us isn't a fool's errand? I mean, is the Great Commission kind of like a coach's pre-game plan, right? It looks great on paper, but there are a lot of other factors that are going to determine whether it succeeds or not. You know, there's, there's his players, then there's the other team's players, and then there's the dreaded referees. Is that what Jesus' mission is like? Is that what the Great Commission is? It's just a pre-game plan that we're hoping to accomplish. Can we have confidence that this God-given mission to engage the world with the gospel will succeed? What's well, the answer? We turn to the book of Romans. Romans, you know, was written by the Apostle Paul sent to the church in Rome because he wanted to partner with them. If you go ahead 
and we're not going to turn there, but your afternoon homework is to look at chapter 15, and you'll see that Paul's interest was not simply to write a theological treatise to the church in Rome. He wanted to go there so that they would send him on his way to Spain to be part of his mission, to partner with him. And the basis of that partnership is the gospel that they share. That's, what, that's why most of this letter is about the gospel. It begins, you know, Paul won't shrink from it, Romans 1.16. You've heard it many times, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And if you take that as Paul's thesis statement, basically chapters 1 to 8 explain that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And when you come to chapters 9 to 11, now Paul is going to explain what he means by to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then after that, we have this classic therefore statement, right? Therefore, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, based on everything that's come before. Then he's going to tell us how we ought to live in light of this gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so Romans 9 to 11 really gives us the worldwide scope of God's purpose and God's gospel. And today, we're only going to focus on chapters 9 and 10, all right? Are we all there now? Beginning Romans chapter 9, verse 1, this is what the Lord says through the Apostle Paul. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac... Though they were not born, yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show, you my, power in, I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. 
And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out His sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as, it, as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart and heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend to the, into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, by the work of your Spirit, we pray that we might hear today to hear your word, to hear your truth, and so to have our faith built and strengthened. And we pray that as your word goes out today, that by the work of your great spirit, one will hear and come to faith for the very first time and be saved. Save the lost, Lord. Strengthen your church. Glorify yourself through this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as you might imagine, maybe you were marking things along the way with question marks. Well, I hope he talks about this, and I hope he talks about that. And I just want to be right up front with you that I cannot possibly say everything that there is to say about all of these verses in one sitting. My goal, my hope, my prayer is that we will have the big picture of what Paul is doing in this section as we go. That big picture, I believe, is that God will save the world as we preach the gospel. Now, when we say world, we don't mean every single person in the world. We mean world in the sense that Paul means it here, which means every from every people group, Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles, the peoples of the world. And as we consider it, what we see at the beginning of Romans 9 and the beginning of Romans 10 is actually Paul's deep burden. It would be worthwhile just to sit and to ponder and meditate on Paul's burden for his fellow Jews. He's brokenhearted for them. They are his kinsmen according to the flesh, chapter 9, verse 3. 
They have these wonderful advantages. Did you hear this? Verse 4 of chapter 9. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. They have everything they could possibly need to know that Jesus is the Son of God and to believe in Him, and yet they do not. You remember that moment in John chapter 5? Jesus looks at the Pharisees and He says, You search the Scriptures thinking that you know them, but you don't actually know them because they point to Me. They had everything, every advantage, and they threw it out. They rejected the one who was to come. Now, we know that kind of pain, don't we? We know it when we have children grow up in the church with great advantages, praying parents, teaching them, seeking to set an example of what it means to follow Jesus, Sunday school teachers, youth leaders, other people in the church investing hours and hours in them, loving them, teaching them, only to see them walk away, denying the faith that should be firmly in their grasp, leaving it behind. The statistics bear this out, don't they? 80% or something like that that grows up in church is going to walk away from it, statistically speaking. What a heartbreak for parents, for the church. I mean, we might cry out with Paul, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off for their sake. And most certainly we would join in his prayer meeting, wouldn't we? My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Of course, the Jews are not kids who grew up in church. They are a unique and special case. The Lord had set them apart as His chosen people, rescued them from Egyptian slavery, provided for them daily in the wilderness, gave them land, gave them His law, gave them a way to make atonement for sin, to worship Him, to be His people. And they turned away from Him over and over and over again. They simply would not be His people. So God sent the one who would epitomize what it means to be His, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus obeyed the law. He fulfilled it. He came not only to obey the demands of the law in obedience, He came to fulfill the law's demand for all disobedience by becoming the once-for-all sacrifice for sin for His people, to save God's people. And even then, with all the prophecies and all the pictures in the Old Testament that point to Jesus, the Jews still reject Him. So you know on the cross, Jesus utters the words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You remember that? I have to think that was especially true for the Jews who should have seen who should have known, but they refused. And yet, these chapters remind us that God still has purposes for the world. And if you just keep reading and you get to chapter 11, you find out God's not finished with the Jewish people either. Paul says in chapter 11, verse 1, I myself am an Israelite. Paul himself is proof that God is not done with Jews, he says. Indeed, God will save the world. It is actually through the rejection of Jesus by the Jews that opens the door to the Gentiles. And you see this over and over again in Acts, don't you? Paul goes to a new city. Where does he go? Where's the first place he goes? Synagogue, right? He's going to go talk to Jews. He's going to, he's going to, he's going to wrestle with them, argue with them, debate with them, seek to convince them that Jesus is the one who was to come. And when they finally get sick and tired of it and throw him out, you know what happens? The door is open. Paul says, you know what? That hall looks big enough. Let's rent that one for a little while. We're going to go there and all the Gentiles come and I'm going to teach them too. The rejection of Jesus by the Jews in, in a historical sense opened the door to the Gentiles. God will save the world as we preach the gospel. So let's think about just the two halves of that, for, of that sentence. First, God will save the world. 
Part of what we see in Romans 9 is that the rejection of Jesus by the Jews will not thwart God's plan. God's plan is never off track. Do you believe that? In the relative comfort of this place, maybe you're having a good season in your life. It's really easy to amen that, isn't it? God's plans are never thrown off track. Until, I mean, it's kind of like the Polar Express, all right? You've seen that movie, right? There are times when you think this train is done for. This is not going to get where it's going. And then all of a sudden it's on ice and it's going back and forth and all these things and woof, it emerges back on the track. It was always going to get there, you see. But sometimes it feels like the train is way off the tracks, doesn't it? So we always have to remember that nothing is going to thwart God's plans. The rejection of Jesus by the Jews is not going to thwart God's plans. He has, in fact, it was part of his unfolding plan to save the world. Actually, Paul says as much in chapter 9, verse 6. Look at it. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. When the Jews reject Jesus, God isn't rehearsing to himself, well, at first, if you don't succeed, try, try again. That is not what's happening. God's plan all along was to get to exalt Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. So think about that. God will save. Just stop there. God is the one who saves. One of the misconceptions among the Jews was that their physical connection to Abraham gave them an automatic in with God. We can't go to all the places that that happens, but that was the case. But Paul actually refutes that with biblical proof. That's where he goes in verse 9, verse 6, sorry, of chapter 9. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. You see, Ishmael would not be the son of promise. There was only one, was Isaac. And then he goes on to talk about Jacob and Esau in the womb of Rebekah and how he says the, the older will serve the younger. God had purpose not that his people would be strictly dependent on biology. Otherwise, they, the, we would just be singing to the great bio, biological you know, uh, discernment, wouldn't we? Biology is not the decisive factor in being one of the children of God. Did it give them a great advantage? Yes. Did it mean they were children of God? No. Paul says not all who are Israel are actually Israel. There's an Israel within Israel, he says. There's a true Israel. And then there's the collected biological nation, Israel. We don't have the decisive voice in salvation either. Did you notice that? Chapter 9, verse 16. It depends not on human will or exertion. God's voice is decisive. He's chosen to save. And friends, He's chosen whom He will save. Look at verse 18. So then He has mercy on whomever He wills. And He hardens whomever he wills. It is God's purpose of election, verse 11, that is working itself out as the gospel goes to the world. Now, truthfully, many, lots of folks struggle with this idea of God's election, right? Maybe if you look back in your life, at some point you struggled with it. You wrestled with it. I remember. I grew up, the church I grew up in, The sovereignty of God was always talked about when it came to suffering, but never when it came to salvation. So when I arrive at seminary, and I I was just immersed in the Bible and surrounded by those who helped me understand the Bible, all of a sudden, boom, 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 boom. And Susan will tell you, there were a number of ideas that... uh, that opened the door to a living room sermon. 
as I walked back and forth in the living room, working it out in my mind, trying to figure it out, wrestling, praying, wondering. And plenty of people struggle like that. You see, today, human autonomy, the very notion that I am the master of my own fate, the ruler of my world, the king of my castle, that is a dominant idea, isn't it? I can make any decision about any area of my life, and that's the final word on the subject. Anything else denies my basic human rights. Isn't that how people are operating today? Isn't that the way the world works? So it's not unusual that the very idea that God comes along and says, no, 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 actually, I am the master and the king and the ruler. It's no surprise then that if the culture is feeding that other thing to us, that when God says otherwise, it confronts and we may wrestle with it. Maybe you find yourself asking a question like was asked in verse 14. What shall we say there? Is there, is there injustice in, on God's part? Is this, is this actually fair? No. What would be fair is that we all be condemned. That's what would be fair. That's justice. Beware asking for justice when you know what you deserve. And then the question in verse 19. You you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Why why are we still held responsible for our sin? And, And Paul's answer here reminds us that it is true, while being human is glorious, we are unique among all creatures, we are made in the image of God, the fact remains... We are still creatures. And it's easy to forget that. It's easy to forget God's place and my place. So Paul helps us remember, verse 20, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. In other words, Paul's response is, dear friend, it is ours to receive God's truth, not to question God's truth, not to put God on the defendant's stand and say, how could you possibly? but to say, to look at ourselves and the mercy we've received and the salvation we received and then ask God, how could you do something like this? Why me? Jesus says that the Spirit blows wherever it wills. And when you get it, really get a grasp on that and on the, on the wonders of grace and forgiveness and love from God, you find yourself asking Why should the wind blow on me? Why should it blow on me? But what Romans 9 is telling us is that God will save. God will save. Not our family heritage, not our works, not our will. God will save. And Romans 9 tells us this, God will save. Isn't that wonderful? God didn't send Jesus and say, man, I hope they accept him. I hope this goes the way I'd like it to go. What I'd really like is for some folks in Indianapolis to believe in him and then come together and start worshiping and then talking about him. This is not how God operates the universe. Right? I mean, you know that from the beginning, right? You go to Genesis 1. God, just, let, God said, let there be, and there was. This is not a God who twiddles his thumbs and hopes that what he wants to happen will happen. This is a God who never fails to do what he sets out to do. And that's good news. He will not fail. He will not fail to do what He has promised to do in you who believe. He will not fail to do what He has said He will do in the world. 
the world. That's the other part of that phrase. God will save the world. You see, at the beginning of part of the letter, Paul makes it clear that the problem of sin is the world. In chapter 3, verse 9, he says, For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And now in chapter 9, verse 24, he says that these are the ones who has, whom God has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. God's saving purposes reach as far as sin does. You know how it goes in Joy to the World, right? He comes to make His blessing known. What's the next line? Far as the curse is found. Right? Jesus brings God's blessing as far as the curse, not to the Jew only, but to the Greek, so that no Jew can claim automatic inclusion in God's people, and no Gentile can claim automatic exclusion from God's people. God will save the world. No ethnicity will be out. Whatever people or tribe or nation has been wrecked by sin, their persons will be redeemed from sin. You see, there's a vision in Revelation chapter 7 of people from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages around God's throne, praising Him for salvation. And that vision isn't a goal, a wish, or a dream, you see. It's a promise. And God does what He promises. In fact, it's the very fulfillment of the promise that God gave to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. Through in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God will save the world. He alone will do it. The only thing we bring to the table is the sin that must be forgiven. And yet the Bible is clear. We must receive this salvation by faith. God does not save apart from faith. He saves through faith. So just think about that for a second. Through faith. That's where Roman, uh, the last four verses of chapter 9 go. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith but as if it were based on works. The Jews thought they could obey their way in, you see. Their righteousness came through obedience to the law, which is why they stumbled when the gospel's preached, right? If all my life I think, well, what I have to do is do, do, obey the law, obey the law, obey the law, and along comes Paul and says, Christ has obeyed the law, you must believe in him, whoa, that doesn't sound anything like what I've been doing my whole life. That has to be wrong. That cannot be stumble. Something similar happens today, is doesn't it? When folks think they have to clean themselves up before they come to the Lord. I need to kick that habit. I need to do this. I need to do that. Or someone claims to be a Christian, you know, they, they, they do their best to be good. They think it's a matter of their effort, their obedience. I mean, how many times have I talked with someone who thought that, who would tell me they believe in, the, they believe in God and they try to obey the Ten Commandments and this is what makes them a Christian? This is not what makes them a Christian. This is what gives them, according to chapter 10, verse 2, zeal without knowledge. Because the knowledge is not just Bible information. The knowledge is the knowledge that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That's the knowledge piece that's missing in the Jews in Paul's day. And that's the knowledge piece that's missing in so many people. That Jesus Christ is the only one who has merited acceptance with God. And he grants that freely to all who believe in him. Not all who obey him. Not all who give a certain amount. Not all who just are in the church, who want to be members of the church. Not all who just do their best. Only those who trust in Jesus Christ. You know, there's a parable in Matthew 22 where Jesus speaks of a wedding feast, right? It's thrown by a king for his son. Everyone's there. 
and somebody has shown up in non-wedding attire. Now, this is difficult for us to believe because these days it doesn't seem like proper wedding attire is a phrase that even exists anymore in our culture, right? I come in my shorts and my t-shirt. I just washed my car, but I'm here to see you get married, all right? Fine. But then you don't walk into the king's son's banquet without decorum. So the king spots the man. Who is this? Why is he not wearing what he's supposed to wear? And then he gets tossed out. A picture of the fact that we cannot show up at the door of the king of heaven wearing whatever it is we happen to throw on. You see, the deeds of our own righteous deeds are worse than the cut-off shorts and the shirt I just washed my car in. They're filthy rags. They're bloody, nasty, filthy, gross, unacceptable. And we will never get in with our own deeds clothing us. We must come in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which we can only wear by faith. Look at chapter 10, verse 11. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all bestowing his riches on all who call on him. He had just made a distinction at the beginning of that paragraph, by the way, of Moses who said, talked about the righteousness that comes from obeying the law, but the righteousness of faith knows you can't launch up into heaven and bring Christ down. You can't go down in the earth and bring Christ up. You can't do anything to accomplish the righteousness that you need. What does it say then? The word is near you. It's in your heart. It's in your mouth. The word of faith, the gospel brings to us the message that we need in order to believe. God will bestow his riches, Paul says, on all who call on him. Dear friend, you could receive those riches today. The richness of God's love, the richness of his forgiveness, the riches of his righteousness credited to your account. If you would come to him, if you would call on him. Verse 13 says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. God will save the world. I just finished reading this book. It's a biography of John Stott. And toward the end, Stott says this in an interview. Why I am a Christian, or in something he wrote, sorry, why I am a Christian is due ultimately neither to the influence of my parents and teachers, nor to my own personal decision for Christ, but to the hound of heaven. That is, it is due to Jesus Christ himself who pursued me relentlessly, even when I was running away from him in order to go my own way. And if it were not for the gracious pursuit of the hound of heaven, I would today be on the scrap heap of wasted and discarded lives." All glory and honor go to God. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's because the hound of heaven tracked you down. It's because before the world began, He set His love on you. Why? Because He set His love on you. There is no other explanation. There is nothing in you. By grace, you have been saved through faith. And that is a gift. What's a gift? Faith? Grace? Yes. Both are gifts. Dear friend, you can't stir up enough faith to believe in God. We throw ourselves wholly on His mercy. The moment that becomes clear, you know the Spirit's at work. When, when you come to the end of yourself and you see you need Jesus, you may only know, 
Well, finally, I figured it out. I need to go to Jesus, right? So you run to Jesus. And then three years later, you go to Romans 9, and you read, and you read Romans 8, and you read Ephesians 1, and you think, I didn't actually go to Jesus. Jesus came to me. How glorious. How wonderful. How good that is. God will save the world. Second phrase. As we preach the gospel. That's where Paul goes. He speaks about the electing purposes of God to save from Jew and Greek. That he has the prerogative to do that. And that he will do it through faith. And then we come to our responsibility. Engaging the world with the gospel as it were. Taking the word of faith to the world. So look at verses 14 to 17. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never seen? Uh, Sorry, whom they have never heard. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The faith that is necessary to save comes through hearing, hearing the word of Christ, hearing the word of faith, hearing the gospel. Now, I just want you to look, I want you to look down at your Bible, look at your Bible. Okay, can you see the beginning of chapter 9? See the beginning of chapter 9? See that big old 9 in your Bible? And then I want you to find chapter 10. You see chapter 10 in your Bible? Now, can you see any indication that we've had a change in authorship from chapter 9 to chapter 10? Any change? Is there somebody else writing chapter 10 here? This means yes, this means no. Is anybody else writing chapter 10? This is still Paul, isn't it? Isn't that something? We haven't changed books, we haven't changed authors, we just kept reading. The same Paul who says he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills who looks at the one who says, "Um, how can we be held responsible and says, who are you, O man, to speak back to God? The same Paul who says that says in verse 13 of chapter 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then in verse 14, he says, how will they ever believe? Unless they've heard. Out of the same mouth come both of those things. And in them, dear friends, is no contradiction. Someone once asked Charles Spurgeon how he reconciles the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. And Spurgeon, in his Spurgeonic way, said, I don't. You don't have to reconcile friends. These two come along together. Are you responsible to repent and believe? Yes. When you do, why will you have done it? Because before the foundation of the earth, God had set his love on you. There is really no other way to see it, I think, clearly, than to simply take both. God chooses whom he will save, and he sends his chosen people all over the world to preach the gospel. So the one that, ones that God has chosen to save from every tongue, tribe, people, and language will hear the gospel, come alive by the Spirit, and trust in Jesus Christ. William Carey lived in the 18th century, he's a Baptist minister in England, and he was in a, a meeting of pastors, and he had a deep concern for those who would not have heard the gospel around the world. And so he comes to this meeting ready to propose that they send out someone to go and to take the gospel. And one of the older ministers said this to him, Sit down, young man. When God is pleased to convert the heathen, he will do it without your aid or mine. Well, dear friends, that simply wasn't good enough for William Carey, and it shouldn't be good enough for any of us. Less than a decade later, he landed in India to preach the gospel, and God's 
power through the ministry of William Carey is one of the reasons why the southern part of India has far more Christians in it than the northern part of India. And the power of the gospel through people is why we are partnered with the Delhi Bible Institute to plant churches across North India. You see, so often Christians think that God's sovereignty and man's responsibility is kind of an either-or situation. You can either have one or the other, but you can't have both. Well, the Bible says, no, 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 that's wrong. It's not an either-or situation. It's a both-and. It's a both-and. God is sovereign, and we are responsible. We are responsible to believe and to engage the world. Because how will, dear friend, look at me. How will your friends and your family and your co-workers and your children and the strangers that God providentially puts you into contact with, how will they believe unless you share the gospel with them? That's the force. And the answer is they won't. That's what Paul believes. He said that Jesus called him, Acts 26, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Look at those words on the screen. Paul says he is to open their eyes. He is to bring them from darkness to light. He takes such responsibility for his part that he speaks that way. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says, I become all things to all people so that by all means I might save some. That is, he sees himself as a co-worker with God. This same Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 3, uh, who is Paul, who is Apollos, we're nothing. Only God gives the growth. Same thing. He's not wishy-washy. He's not flip-flopping here between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. He so firmly grips both that he can aggressively go to the ends of the world knowing that this is the means that God will sovereignly save his people. That's what we need. We need to keep going to the ends of the earth and the ends of the street knowing that no matter how clever I am, I am not clever enough to convert. No matter how fumbly I may be with my words, I cannot thwart the power of God's grace converting that person. No matter how little I can actually answer when it comes to the hard questions that people like to ask, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, not the apologetic answers are the power of God unto salvation. Sure, yes, learn, grow, all of those things. But don't rest in things outside the gospel to be the power when you interact with folks. We must keep our focus as a church in doing that, going to the ends of the earth with the gospel. Which means, which is why if you were in our members meeting, this is public knowledge, if we were in our members meeting, our priority is to plant churches and evangelize to the ends of the earth, to be directly involved with people who are doing it. Not to just be thankful for them, though we are, but to be involved with them. Those are our partners there. We're doing that work with them. We exist to glorify God by engaging the world with the gospel. It's our call, our mandate. And as we do it, we rest in the truth that God will save the world as we preach the gospel. So many in the church, friends, so many, and I don't mean the churches in this church, I just mean in the church, wider a wider scope. So many in the church have been caught up engaging the world with a political platform, engaging the world with a particular view of disease and masks, engaging the world with the defense of a candidate. We've done it to, we've done it to such a degree that we've lost our way. We've misplaced our hope. Recently, a man in our congregation shared that a young lady in his office with whom he'd shared the gospel for quite a while has now come to faith in Jesus. That she is part of a Bible-believing church. 
that she is actively changing how she lives because she wants to live for Jesus every day. That young lady needed a savior, not a senator. And God saved her as our brother preached the gospel to her. Don't you want to be part of that? Don't you want to invest your time and your money and your energy in doing what God has already said will in the end be successful? Then engage the world with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, this is our desire. It is your call. We are thankful to see in your word how your purpose from the beginning was to reach the world with Jesus Christ. How we are not on a fool's errand. The Great Commission is not a pre-game coach's plan. It is the promise of our almighty sovereign God who will save his people through the preaching of his gospel. Lord, I know there are some who will wrestle with notions of sovereignty and responsibility, and I pray that you will give us all grace to believe both with the same conviction that Paul did, with the same conviction that our Lord Jesus did when he was on earth. Help us to receive your words, bend to your will, yield to your wisdom. And we pray, O God, that we will become all things to all men, so that by all means we might save some. We pray in the name and for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Savior and King. Amen.